can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, we're going to actually going to be covering a large chunk of text, Ephesians 4:17 through 5:21. But before we do that, we have to celebrate something together this morning. You guys don't seem celebratory. Come on, pick up. Just because it's like dreary out there doesn't mean it needs to be dreary in here. Um, Remember how we talked about the reality that Christians need to be celebrating marriage a couple weeks back? Do you remember that? Well, we got to celebrate marriage this morning. Bob and Judy Kinsey have been married for 57 years today. I mean, isn't that incredible? God bless Judy Kinsey for putting up with Bob for 57 years. I always say to Katie, you are a far better Christian than I am because you put up with me. She, she's, Judy's an incredible woman. Well, um, I do want to make you aware, too, that there is a sign-up table. If you would like to participate in the Walk for Hope, there's a table right out there. I encourage you to do that. I spoke with their community director, and she said normally at these Walk for Hopes, there's around 90 people who show up. I would love to see OBC make a huge splash by bringing another 50 to 70 people to the Walk for Hope. I think that would say all the right things to the community as we kind of continue along in this theme, a heart for the community. All right, let's get into our text. I've got a picture on the screen here for you. Um, the kids knew who this was in the first service. Do you know who this is? Who is that? It's Bruno. Some of you are like, I have no idea who Bruno is. It doesn't matter. That was for the kids, okay, in the first service. If you don't know who Bruno is, I don't want to waste your time. I'm not going to say go watch the movie. Just go online and read the cliff notes real quick, and you'll be brought up to speed. There's a song, he's actually a Disney character um, in the, the Disney movie Encanto, and uh, there's a song about him, and it says, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no. And as you look at the story, Bruno happens to be a misunderstood member of the family. Some members of the family, they never talk about Bruno, other members of the family, they don't really understand who Uncle Bruno was, because no one talks about him. Now, as I was thinking about this Disney character, because I have three kids, so I am well immersed in these types of things, I thought to myself, isn't that interesting that the Holy Spirit seems to be the Bruno of the Trinity? Uh, when you think about the Holy Spirit, right, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, nearly enough. Why is that? Well, I think that Christians in this culture today, in our understanding today, tend to avoid or de-emphasize de the Holy Spirit for two reasons. One reason has something to do with confusion. I mean, we find the other members of the Trinity far more relatable because I understand the category of God the Father and I understand the category of God the Son being my Savior. Those are categories that I can relate with. But let me ask you, when you think about the Holy Spirit, do you find it very easy to relate to Him? I mean, what is He? A ghost? A spirit? 
some kind of invisible force. Often when I hear people talk about the Holy Spirit, they refer to him as in it. Well, anytime you look at the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is only referred to as the third person masculine pronoun, him. You know, when we don't understand something, we tend to shy away from it. Now, here's another reason, maybe. Maybe there is some conflict around the Holy Spirit. I mean, what do I mean by that? Well, some Christians have some very strong ideas concerning the Holy Spirit. There tends to be an extreme when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Some Christians don't talk about Bruno, and other Christians, all they do is talk about Bruno. Some emphasize the ecstatic experiences that come with the Holy Spirit, and others, they say there should be no subjective feelings whatsoever, you know? We're a very stoic bunch. We don't want to feel anything when we come to church. Now the Holy Spirit has turned into something like religion and politics. You don't talk about the Holy Spirit in polite company. But I'll tell you, Avoiding the Spirit or de-emphasizing the Spirit is a big mistake because Jesus said this in John 16, 7. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I challenge you for a moment to put yourself into the disciples' shoes as they're hearing Jesus say that for the first time. If I'm one of these disciples and Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away, I say, no, Jesus, it is not better for me that you go away. Are you kidding me? You're the teacher. You're the miracle worker. You're the Messiah. Jesus, the reason I threw down my fishing nets and started following you is precisely because I wanted to be near your presence and to see all these incredible things you're doing. And now you're saying it's better for me that you go away? And Jesus says, yeah, it's better for you. Because if I don't go away, then you don't get the Holy Spirit. Now let that sink in. The Bible's saying that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is better for us right now than the actual physical presence of Jesus. Why? Because all that we are becoming in Christ requires the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Apart from that indwelling presence, I can do nothing in the Christian life. However, when the Holy Spirit is active and present and in control, then I become all that God calls me to become. So we're going to take a look at this passage, and we're going to see in this passage that we have to start talking about Bruno, and we should never stop talking about Bruno. It's a large chunk of text. I'm going to be reading it to you this morning. I hope you understand when I cover this many verses, I can't be exhaustive. I can't cover everything in detail, but I will try my best to be comprehensive, to cover what is most important in the text so you see how the Holy Spirit plays a central role in our lives. Let's pick it up and read, starting at verse 17. It says, now, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, covetous that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Christ. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a lot of text, isn't it? And I'll tell you, when I read a lot of text like this in the Bible, sometimes I can lose the forest for the trees. You know, when you look at these letters of Paul, they're actually intended to be read in a single sitting. It's interesting that as we make our way through the Bible, we tend to kind of cover little pieces of the scripture at one time, but does anyone ever read a love letter from their sweetie like that? No, I don't pull out my dictionary and my encyclopedias and try to trace where things are so that I can understand the intent of my sweetheart. I, I read it all, and I try to take in the full message. I find that when I make my way through Paul's letters, sometimes it feels like just a series of practical advice and everything kind of seems about the same in level of importance. So I start making my way through it and he says, okay, I shouldn't be a thief and maybe I need to evaluate my life. Is there any way that I'm cheating others or that I'm cheating on my taxes? Am I taking money under the table? Well, I'd better stop doing that. And while all of that is necessary and important, it's more important to understand Paul's main argument. If you look at this text, I want you to look at chapter 5, verse 18. That's the key to the passage. It's the linchpin. Everything that comes before, everything that comes after balances upon this point. He says in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Everything that comes before, Paul's telling us to live an authentic Christian life. And then everything that comes after, he's saying, you need to submit to one another within your relationships. But what we're seeing this morning is if I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit, I can't do any of that. I can't do it. Maybe if you've listened to preaching or you've read the Bible, you've heard that idea be filled with the Spirit. Let me ask you, what does that mean? What does that really mean? And why in this particular passage does Paul compare being filled with the Spirit to being drunk? I think there's actually a logical comparison here. I mean, think about what alcohol does to us. If someone drives while under the influence, there's actually a law that deals with that, and it's called a D-U-I, driving under the influence. Why is that? Because alcohol impairs my ability to react to things and my decision-making skills. That's why in this text, Paul says, don't get drunk. Alcohol isn't going to better your life. It's not going to help you out more if you're going through a tough time or if you just need to react. It relax if you get accustomed to it because it has this addictive nature. It can impair you. That is a destructive controlling presence. Instead, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a life-giving controlling presence. So here we see already that Paul is telling us, be filled with the Spirit, let the Holy Spirit have control over your life. Now, I want to observe a couple more things about the grammar of this particular verb. First, notice that it's a command. And when something is a command, it means that you can either obey it or disobey it. 
You can either choose to be filled with the Spirit or choose not to be filled with the Spirit. Notice another thing. It is passive. Now, passive means that someone is acting upon me. It's not something that I do myself. It's not something that I command him to do. No, the Spirit of God is acting upon me. I have an active part to play in this because I can obey him or I can disobey him, but the benefit of being filled is something that I can only receive. Another observation is something that you really can only notice with the assistance of the Greek text. You see, this verb is in the Greek present tense. Now, the Greek present tense tends to indicate continuous activity. So you could translate it like this, be continuously filled with the Spirit, meaning that I could be filled with the Holy Spirit on Sunday, but not on Monday. So I have to continually be asking myself the question, am I filled with the Spirit right now? Am I allowing him to control my life? Am I giving him that leadership of my life? One last observation. There's a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and it's Colossians 3.16. Now, in Colossians 3.16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says that instead of saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So connect the dots. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What do we take away from that? Well, we see that God's word and God's spirit, the author of the word, they operate together. They never operate independent of one another. J.D. Greer explains it this way. He says, the spirit takes God's timeless truths and makes them come alive in us. He helps us understand them, shows us how to implement them, and empowers us to accomplish them. So let's put this all together then. Being filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit has control over my life as I follow the Spirit's will for my life. And how do I know what the Spirit's will for my life is? It's found in the Word of God. After all, He is the Spirit who inspired the Word of God. And this is an activity that I must surrender to daily, and the benefits of this are manifold. As you are filled with the Spirit, you will have a greater love for God, a greater awareness of God in your life, a greater victory of sin over your life, greater power for ministry, and a greater awareness of your spiritual gifts. Church, I'm telling you, you can't do the Christian life without the third person of the Trinity. So, as we keep working through this passage, I want to work backwards through the passage and I want to show you how Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is doing this and what the Holy Spirit's intent is as he does this work in your life. Let's start with the intent. Throughout this passage, you'll notice that Paul is contrasting. He's contrasting those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior with those who have not trusted Jesus with their savior, as their Savior. Now, at the core of this contrasting work is chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. You'll notice he says in verse 5, for example, he contrasts the two. He says, those who don't know Jesus 
have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, the implication there is that if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you do have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 8, there's another contrast. He also says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now, why do we make contrasts? Well, contrasts are intending to show us the difference between two categories, right? So here, Paul is distinguishing between an authentic follower of Jesus and an inauthentic follower of Jesus. Why does it matter if something's authentic versus inauthentic? Well, it matters a lot, doesn't it? And how do I distinguish between those two things? The only way to distinguish between them is you have to know what the marks of the original are. Let me ask you, who here used to watch that old show, The Antique Road Show, back in the day? Is it still on? I used to watch that, like, I don't know, I was probably nine at the time I was watching it, so, cool. Yeah, antiques, they, they tend not to go away, do they? So you guys watch The Antique Road Show. First service, I mean, I was getting some amens and hallelujahs to that one. I mean, you all are an exciting bunch, let me say that. <laughs> I loved that show when I was a kid, so obviously I'm out of touch. And when I used to watch it as a kid, um, it was fun to watch people bring out those old hidden gems that they'd found either in their garage or they'd bought at a yard sale or they, got at a, they acquired at a pawn shop. And whenever they would bring them out, they would have an expert who would come and evaluate this piece. It was really excited, and they really got you leaning in when the expert would say something along the lines of, this piece could be worth up to something like $100,000. Now you're like, ooh, I wonder if this is the real deal. Sometimes they would evaluate the piece, and they made someone's day. Other times they evaluated the piece and they're like, well, because these three marks are missing, this is a replica. I'm sorry, but it's worth about 50 bucks. Ouch. You know, I believe that Paul is telling us something as he's making this contrast. He's showing us that the Holy Spirit has an intent. The intent of the Holy Spirit is to make you like the original. He says that in Ephesians 4.24, he tells us what the original is. The original is the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, whenever you see likeness of God in the scriptures, that means the image of God in you. So we're being made into vintage versions of, of God's own image. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says it's the Holy Spirit of God who does that work in you. He says, you are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You look over at Romans 8.29, Paul says that the original version is Jesus himself. He says, you are being conformed to the image 
of His Son. Put all those pieces together. The Holy Spirit is making you into an authentic version of Jesus. That's His intent. That's His goal. That's ever what He wants for your life. And it's so important that we look like the original in this world, in this life now. You see, I believe that lost people in this world need authentic versions of Jesus. If they're going to be drawn to Christ, they need to see healthy representations of what Jesus looked like. Now, in this passage, Paul addresses some serious inconsistencies that genuine believers can fall into. He talks about sexual intimacy. He talks about how we speak to one another. He talks about covetousness, which is another form of greed. And he says that basically these inconsistencies can destroy your gospel witness. You don't look like the real deal. You look like a replica when you're living in that sort of way. Now, as we consider those things, we might ask ourselves the question, well, why does that have anything to do with my witness? I mean, what does it matter if I conduct my intimate life in, in the way that I want to conduct it or how I talk to people? Why does that matter? What's wrong if I want a little more for myself? The problem is this, for the unbeliever, the credibility of Jesus is uniquely linked to your own credibility. That's what we see in the Word and to be real this morning, I'm convinced that we American Christians, can ha we have a serious public relations problem on our hands right now. Those outside of the church, they don't think of us particularly well. Uh, I've been doing some studies, and one study that I've recently found, for example, said that 85% of young people outside of the church question the believability of the faith because they see that there's a gap in credibility. Now, it's not just credibility in terms of doing all of the right things that Jesus said to do, but sometimes it's not displaying the love that Jesus called us to display. Both of those things send out a mixed message. They start asking questions like, well, do these Christians really believe what they're preaching? They're not living what it says in practical ways. I don't know if this is believable if that's true of them. It's almost like we're soda salesmen selling a soda that we don't even want to drink. So these people need to see a real, credible, authentic version of Jesus. Why? Because we live in a virtual this and a synthetic that, and we're led by leaders who want to make rules for thee and not for me. People are starving for authenticity. They want someone who is believable, and I'm telling you, church, we can show them who that someone is through our gospel witness. I like the analogy that Paul uses. He talks about it being like light, Walk as children of the light. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. It's a great analogy because light does two things. Light reveals and light transforms. As you walk like Jesus walked, 
as an authentic version of him, you both reveal what is right, and people are transformed as they see that authentic gospel witness. Now, as you look at this text, you have to ask yourself the question, well, how does the Holy Spirit make me into an authentic version of Jesus? I want to suggest to you this morning that that's not something that you can just kind of think really, really hard about and choose to do, and it's just going to happen tomorrow for you. No, the Bible tells us that we actually have to go through a process, a process that theologians call sanctification. Let me define sanctification for you. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit to make you more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in your actual life. You're going to see the language of sanctification all over this passage. Look at, for example, chapter 4, 22 and verse 24. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Now, in the Greek text, that is not actually something where it's like you can actively do that. It is something that the Holy Spirit does to you. Look at verse 23 now. It says that you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. I think a better translation for this is actually be renewed by the spirit in your minds. It's the same type of work that Paul describes in Titus 3.5 he says there, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, it's the Holy Spirit who does this work. Verse 24 of chapter 4, you are being created, or better translated, recreated after the likeness of God. That's all sanctification language. And it's the Holy Spirit's most significant work in your life. That's why we need his indwelling presence in our life. Now, I want us to see a couple of things about sanctification from this text. The first thing we can observe is that sanctification is an indirect process, even though you must participate in it. It's something that happens to you, but you still participate in the activity of it. Think of it like physical exercise. I, um, in the last two and a half years, got really involved in weightlifting. I know some of you are like, you don't even look like it. That's fine. I don't care what you think of me. But uh, I got involved in it just because I'm sedentary, I'm studying books, and uh, I wasn't too happy when I was looking in the mirror lately, you know what I mean? So, got involved. Here's what happens with weightlifting. When you get involved in weightlifting, you are emphatically not building muscle or getting stronger as you pump iron. That's not what's happening. No, as you pump iron, you are actually creating micro tears in your muscle. The real work of building muscle and getting stronger happens while you are sleeping and resting and eating food. Isn't that funny? Yet, if I don't engage in the activity of pumping iron, I'm never going to develop that Greek bo God body that I want. <laughs> so, in the same way, the Holy Spirit changes you as you work with him. Now, the Holy Spirit 
begins this process by changing your mind. He changes how you think and what you love and, and what you believe to be valuable and true. He's actually engaging in the process of teaching you to start thinking about the world the way Jesus thought about the world. That's what Paul is saying in 423. He says, be renewed by the Spirit in your minds. It's the same thing he said in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but rather what? Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. So, do I renew my mind? Do I do that for myself? What do you think? I think the answer is kind of. <laughs> kind of. Like, I, I can sit under good preaching, I can study God's word, but all of that is really just merely setting up the conditions for the mind renewal. It's actually the Holy Spirit who renews my mind. He's the one who transforms the ideas into ideas that I start loving. He connects the infinite distance between the mind and the heart. That's why, church, every Christian needs to exercise their mind daily. Daily. It turns out that you are and become what you read, you listen to, and you watch. Now, we sometimes argue with that, and we say, no, I'm not being influenced by this, but Time and again, the Bible tells us that your mind is like a sponge. It picks things up. So the more I expose myself to something, the more that starts getting incorporated into my worldview. What I say and what I think and how I act. That's why the word of God is so central to the Christian life. The Holy Spirit needs fuel. <laughs> and he works through the fuel of the word of God. So as I open the word daily, as I come to church week after week and hear the word preach, as I have conversations with other Christians about the word day after day, week after week, year after year, the Holy Spirit starts changing my life through that process. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It turns out that you don't magically wake up one morning totally surrendered to Jesus. No, the more that... I conform my mind to the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, the more I become like Jesus. Now notice that's the second point. After the Spirit changes your mind, the conduct follows. It's all interrelated in this text. The mind, the conduct, and actually the character, all interrelated. Look at verses 20 to 24 of chapter 4. That is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now here's conduct, to put off your old self. Now here's the mind, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Conduct again, to put on the new self. Now here is the character, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But what I love about all of this and Paul's presentation of this is that the process of sanctification is a hopeful process. Listen, if you look at 425 through 54, 
you learn something profound about the Spirit's work. Whenever the Holy Spirit removes something that is unchristlike from your character, He always replaces it with something that is Christ-like. Always. Look at what Paul says here. Listen to the sequence. He says, don't tell lies, but rather tell the truth. Don't lose your temper, but rather ensure that your anger is righteous. Don't steal, but rather work and give. Don't use your mouth for evil, but rather for good. Don't be unkind or bitter, but rather kind and loving. Don't joke about sexual intimacy, but rather give thanks for it. It's a hopeful process. He never takes something away without replacing it with something better. I've come to think of it like this. As the Holy Spirit is working in your life, He's actually extending you more dignity as He's working through your life. Imagine, you remember the clothing analogy that we talked about last week with Easter and you're you're putting off old, like oily rags and, and you're taking on new clothes? Well, think about it like this. Imagine walking up to someone and, and you notice that their clothes are disgusting and you come up to that person and you say, You need to take your shirt off. It's really gross. It's old and oily and you shouldn't be wearing that anymore. Sometimes that is how a judgmental Christian comes across. I'm observing all the wrong things about your life. You're bitter, you're angry, you don't forgive people, take that off. But I don't know about you, I find my dignity to be precious. I protect my dignity. And it's not dignifying to ask someone to take off an article of clothing without supplying a new piece of clothing. No one does that. And maybe for that person, that anger, though they know it's been unhealthy in their life, has actually made them feel alive in some way. For so long. They've been holding on to it for years. Think about how the Holy Spirit works. Listen, son. That old oily clothing you're wearing, that anger, that bitterness, that hatred, you need to take it off. And you need to start wearing King Jesus' clothes, his forgiveness, his grace, his acceptance. Put these on. Church, that's dignity. Everyone needs dignity. And that's why this process of sanctification is so hopeful. You see, the Holy Spirit, His work is at the center of everything that God is doing in your life, the center of everything that you are to become. I mean, what is He doing? He's making you into an authentic version of Jesus. How is He doing this? He's doing it through the process of sanctification. He first begins with your mind, and then that translates into new conduct, which becomes new character. Well, how do I participate in that? I do it by being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, this morning, as we have looked at your word, 
I pray that our minds are even now being shaped and molded in our worldview to be more like Jesus, to walk like He walked, talk like He talked, to love like He loved, Lord. I thank You, God, that even as we look at the Scriptures this morning, we know that You are a God who extends dignity to each and every one of us. You don't come alongside and and reveal everything that's wrong with our lives. You just give us this beautiful picture of one we could be like, King Jesus. And you tell us, you don't have to get your act together fully before you start following him. You just have to start following him. I pray that if there's one here today, and if they haven't started that incredible journey of following Jesus, that today would be the day, Lord that they would choose Christ and choose life and choose to be a child of light. The only way, of course, is to believe in Jesus, that he is my Savior, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again to new life. And Lord, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time, we know that we're still in this process of sanctification. Help us to be continuously filled with the Spirit. I don't know about everyone here, but as I make my way through this passage, I know that the Holy Spirit needs to have a lot more control. So we give that to him this morning, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.